welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm sharing my second conversation with Tommy Forstrom. Tommy recently began as Chief Product Officer at Workstep. He's a product executive that specializes in flipping startups to scale-ups, i.e. navigating the scary adolescence that begins at product market fit. He's on a mission to pull product engineering and design leaders out of the product development bubble to grow a new generation of chief product officers. Welcome, Tommy. Thank you. That sounded so much fancier when you said it. <laughs> it's, it's fun being introduced by somebody else, right? It always makes you sound more professional. It really is. Man, I should charge more for my services. <laughs> So Tommy, in case some of our listeners didn't hear your first episode, let's do a quick 10,000 foot view of what your career has looked like. Yeah. And, and just for the record, I hope nobody, after this is recorded and released, I hope nobody ever listens to the first one because it's crazy. You've been doing this now for quite a few years. I think we yes. spoke like four or so years ago. Three. Probably. Yeah. Three or four years ago. Yeah. And that's been a pretty transformational three, four years in my career. So like, uh, maybe it would be fun for somebody to listen to these episodes back to back and be like, how is this the same person? Right. Um, <laughs> but so anyway, like okay. short, short, short summary of what I am, what I do. I was supposed to be a math teacher, became an engineer instead back in the late nineties, did engineering and then engineering management for like 10 years, moved to New York city in the early 2010s, realized there's such a thing as product management. And like that, that's everything that I love about what I had thought is engineering management at that point. Basically, the full story is I was, you know, a CTO at a small startup. And somebody asked me as we started scaling, like, well, why don't you hire a product manager? I was like, what the hell is that? And I started Googling, found some jaws bricks from the West Coast. And I was like, this is everything I love about my work. Why would I outsource this to somebody else? And immediate career pivot mode. And this is about a decade ago. Transition to product management, realized when I got to product that I actually care a little bit more about the environments, the cultures, the practices, the processes, the orgs that build products more than the actual products themselves. It's a horrible thing for a product person to say, by the way, but I'm saying it anyway. And then once I got there to like product leadership roles, where I got to kind of design the machines, I was like, wait a minute, this whole like shareholder value, valuation principles, PNLs, business leadership, executive team work, like this is cool. This is super exciting. And somehow like that's now led for the last couple of years to me, like defining my role as like an executive first and product leader second, or like major in business, minor in product, if you will. And getting incre- getting really passionate about the weird life cycle stage between kind of early stage, the exploration that then culminates into like product market fit, if you're lucky, and the kind of adolescence that starts from that moment the growth stage, the scale-up stage, the whatever you want to call it, because it's like the most unique part of a company's life cycle. I just finished my tour of duty at Teachable, where I joined two and a half years ago, you know, right at that. Oh, shit. I don't know if we can swear here, but I'm going to do that anyway. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> like, oh, shit, we have product market fit. What now? Um, mm-hmm. And then spent two and a half years scaling the company up to where, you know, we went through an acquisition and the company is significantly larger now and just exited because, you know, just like at the end of Mary Poppins, when Mary Poppins leaves the bank's family, it's like, 
she leaves because she knows the bank's family can now continue on on its own. And so I'm now taking some hopefully well-deserved time off, advising, mentoring, coaching founders, companies, leaders, product managers, you know, and hopefully increasing leverage by you know, talking to your listeners through this medium as well. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'm super excited to hear as much as you can share about your journey at Teachable. So tell us from the beginning, when you joined Teachable, what was the state? Obviously, they just found product market fit, but how big was it? How many engineers did they have? And what did the product team look like? Yeah, it, it was, um, you know, 50 million annual revenue, give or take. Product team was kind of non-existent. There was like a couple of product, like two product managers, two or three designers. And I, I mean, very competent head of design, luckily recently hired. There was about a couple of dozen engineers with a, a really good VP of engineering in place. And the total headcount of Teachable at that point was about 100, give or take. Actually, I think I was employee 101. So it was pretty much exactly 100. And when I left in December, not to go into too many details, so I don't lose any of my RSUs for NDA infringement, but about 60 million annual revenue, give or take, part of Hotmart company, which is the company that acquired us, like, and we're talking like multiple hundreds in revenue and well into the four figures in headcount. Teachable itself was about 230 in headcount and the technology team, like product management, product design, engineering, product operations, and product marketing was about 125 FTE. So like that's kind of the bookends of my journey there. Oh yeah. I love joining a company at like that 100 person-ish stage. I think that's a really fun time to get involved. What was the product practice like when you joined? You mentioned there weren't many product managers, so I'm curious what it looked like. I'm going to throw a couple of personal hypotheses that are like semi-strongly held at this point in that Teachable looked exactly like a company should at that point, which is, it was built solely on the back of founder vision, founder instinct. Like Ankur Nagpal is seriously one of the fastest moving, smartest people that I've worked with. And Teachable at that point had really been built just on the back of like Ankur building a team to hustle and grind behind his vision. And that's what a company coming into product market that really usually should look like. It's just a lot of spaghetti on the wall even more spaghetti on the floor that didn't stick and pretty much a company just solely harnessed to like execute that founder vision and also a founder that up until then had been in every decision in every nook and cranny because to be honest like that is the most efficient way to build into product market fit but the problem is obviously that that does not scale that does not really like it doesn't function when you get in, get into the exploitation phase where you need to like take a product market fit and ride it to its maximum. And so Teachable was exactly there. It was huge product footprint because again, when you hustle and grind, you build a lot, build and ship a lot of things that don't necessarily yield the value, but an ultra strong core product market fit, really good customer base, really talented people and you know strong financials and all that good stuff. So to me, kind of a dream scenario because it's like, brilliant momentum, brilliant foundation had been set, but plenty of work to do to be able to like get to the next stage. You know, what got us here won't get us there is usually the mantra of that stage. That's kind of what I look for in a dream scenario is like a company having done the first stage ridiculously well, but also all the drawbacks of having done that first journey, first leg of the journey really well. So Go into a little more detail for us. What are the drawbacks of having done that first leg really well? Well, usually it's, you know, 
hustle grind and instinct have its drawbacks in that you've usually built way too much product like there's a lot of stuff there not all of it is great not all of it should have been built or kept alive you usually also have a complete lack of focus in like who you're targeting so for example teachable when i joined and i i do want to make sure that i say this with all the admiration to everybody was that was there, but it had peanut buttered itself across a number of different customer types and was trying to even expand more. Because usually the early stage is all about this like frantic expansion. Every idea is valuable. Every new deal is valuable, which is great until you get to the kind of growth stage, early growth stage where that becomes toxic. And so it was just a lot of stuff like that was like essentially coaching the company to be confident, even though what got us here, which was like an utter lack of focus and just like doing everything that you can, like from here on out, that is actually not great. Like you can grow with a pared down focus because once you find product market fit and, you know, also coaching the company, it's not product market fit is not binary. It's not your whole product with all of the market. The first thing you need to do is excavating what part of your product creates the most value and what part of your customer base is reacting to it the strongest. So that to me was like the biggest challenge. Like I, I say this to a lot of product leaders, like product leadership at this level is a lot more change agency and psychology than like executing a playbook or like whatever. It's coaching individual leaders, coaching groups of people to rewire their thinking. And that to me is kind of like, you know, the first step always is like showing a group of people that the way they've scaled up to this point is going to start hitting diminishing returns and doing less but better is actually the right way from here on out. So that that was definitely like the, the first six months for sure. So how do you show people that? I know what got you here won't get you there is a hard lesson for a lot of people to learn. So how do you help them realize it? Geez, Louise, if I had a silver bullet to that, um, it's hard, right? Like, and, and I think there's a cookie cutter answer. And one thing I usually coach people to do nowadays, especially when joining slightly later stage startups or earlier stage scale-ups, is the first thing you got to do is you essentially got to empathy map the founder, the CFO, the board, and, and you got to like get into their mind, like what do they care about? Because even though like with founders, there's like, there's certain common elements, but there's still a relatively diverse group of people and how they think about things and what they care about and what they're worried about. And so I think I, I didn't do this well enough. I don't think I spent enough time on understanding what motivated and what kind of drove Anchor specifically. It really, it starts from understanding the psychology of like where the people you need to influence are because all change begins with like mapping out where you are. It's one thing to like figure out where they need to get to. That's the art, but how do you get them to budge from where they are? And I think that's one of my retro items is like, how do I double down on like first understanding the mindset, the mental environment that they operate in at that point? Yeah, I love that. That's something I push my clients to do too. The empathy map on stakeholders or founders. It's really helpful to make people look at all the different impacts that are on those people and help them understand if there's a behavior that they find really frustrating. Maybe they can understand where it's coming from better and then make a path to get from there to wherever they want to be. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, this is one of those things that I've, tr- I've spent so many brain cycles on because like I spend a lot of time with different product leaders and we're a pretty frustrated bunch. You know what I mean? Like we're, yeah. we're always ground down to a nub because people don't let us do the best work that we know within our hearts that we could do. And I think one of the most transformational things that somebody's given me as a piece of advice was that, and again, I, I'm taking your, your you, you allowed me to swear, so I'm just going to ride it frivolously. But the advice was like, if you're always surrounded by assholes, maybe you're the asshole. And 
that mantra has come in handy so many times. And, and usually the way I, I look at, look at it is like, whenever I find myself in a conflict and, you know, I'm, I can be a little conflict oriented sometimes because I like a good debate. I'm an engineer by background. Like I love debating things, but whenever I find myself walking away from a conflict, just like steaming inside, I always try to ask myself, was there something that I ignored about what the other person, the other party, the other team, the other, whatever was trying to get across, or was I just trying to bulldoze my own view? And it's so crazy because as product people, we're so well-trained to understand our customers, like get deep in there and like get into their brain, look at their activities. And we do so such a bad job at it with other people and other teams and other like important entities around us. Absolutely. And it's so important to be effective in the workplace to be able to do that with all the people around us too. Okay. So when you got there, it had these challenges. And in the first six months, a lot of it was helping them realize what they needed to focus. What were some of the next challenges that you saw? Yeah. I mean, then I actually realized I should have tossed a couple of tactics in there that might be valuable for a few of your listeners. The one thing that especially my time at Insight really helped me. So before Teachable, I was working for a major venture capital fund, uh, Insight Partners. And one of the things we often did for their portfolio was essentially just like segmentation exercises. Like it, it's so common for companies in the growth stage to try and serve way too many different types of customers. And it's shocking how much value you can get from just slicing and dicing your customer base. It depends on your product and your market and your whatever, like what type of segmentation makes sense. Is it geo? Is it demographic? Is it whatever? But once you find the right segmentation and you can clearly show through just raw KPIs and a little bit of qualitative research on top of that, who is your product really providing product market fit for? It can make a meaningful difference because when you've got those LTV, NPS, ARPU, whatever retention numbers cleanly sheeted and, and like segmented, it can make a meaningful difference in how well you can focus moving forward because then you can use those numbers to back into like, what does focus look like from a business outcomes perspective and from a growth trajectory perspective? But so if you can nail that down and if you kind of give a company that like jolt of direction, because that's kind of the other thing that's often endemic at, at these companies, they're very short-sighted. Like you usually get to product market fit with just this like maniacal focus on the current quarter, which again, it's good. You've been conditioned to chase the hellhounds of runway depletion off your tail for like a couple of years. And so usually I find it's a mistake to get overly ambitious with like vision and five-year strategy at that point, because the company is probably not ready to ingest that. It's not ready to operate on that spectrum yet. What you kind of need to do is at least get like a momentum, like a direction, something that's like, okay, if we run in this direction, good things will happen. And then we'll like build the story out after that. Because then once you've got that momentum, you can focus on the next problem, which is basically like, okay, can this machine even run? Like, where can we get this to, to go? And that's when kind of the org building, hiring, firing, you know, establishing culture, practices, processes, all that stuff starts kicking in. And usually there's like a bunch of, you know, I hate calling anything tech debt because I think tech debt is a lazy label to gloss over just bad strategic decisions, but it's quite common to have like not invented here syndrome because in the early stage, the scarcity is on money. You can't afford SaaS tools, but your engineers would happily burn a couple of weekend hours building your analytics tool. Or like, there's usually a bunch of stuff you've built on your own because it was cheaper to build the simple version than to send money to some like, you know, fancy SaaS company. But that starts kind of eating at you really fast. So one of those kind of six month things is that you have to start identifying and eliminating any superfluous footprint 
get rid of anything that should just be a third-party SaaS tool and just replace it with vendors. And the same thing with like your product, you need to start hunting down opportunities to pare down the footprint, both from a technological footprint side, meaning like, is there something in this architecture that could just be replaced by different types of platforms to reduce the cognitive overload of your team, both like product engineering design, Every little thing that people are going to be maintaining and kind of, you know, shepherding is such a cognitive drain at scale. So eliminating any reason that's going to start holding things down, because another endemic problem in this stage is that the CEO is already having a nervous breakdown of like, we used to ship 20 things a week and now we haven't shipped anything in 20 weeks. What the hell? And the, what the hell is really just like the things you've been shipping like the 20 things a week you've been shipping are now this mountain you're handcuffed to and you're like footprints out of control. There's just like, you know, maybe you've got 10 times the engineers you had, but like nine out of 10 of those engineers are just like maintaining and like doing service requests and dealing with like a bad architecture. And then always like on the executive team level, it's just like tech debt, tech debt, tech debt, which is like at the end of the day, it's like, sure, there's probably a couple of things that are just like you cut a few corners. But at the end of the day, it was like, well, we shipped too much product or we made bad decisions on like not using a vendor. And now we're managing up our marketing side on our own CMS or something like that. Interesting. Are you able to share any specifics of like an area that you pared down? You realize like we had shipped too much here and we need to make this simpler. Yeah. I mean, this, this is definitely not something where it's particularly secret, but like subscription management was a good example. Like every SaaS company, if you're selling your wares as subscriptions, you're going to have to start charging your customers some way. And all the good tools to do that, like the Recurlies and Chargebees and especially the, the higher end like Zoras, they cost an arm and a leg. So early and, and especially because they dip into your, your cash flow because they charge you as a percentage of your MRR. I don't think any early stage company should necessarily go with them because it's not that hard to just kind of whip up a checkout and have, you know, Stripe in the background and be over and done with it. The problem is that the complexities of doing subscriptions at scale are going to start killing you. And if you have like tens of thousands of customers, it's a major drain because subscriptions are really hard. They're really complex. And so, I mean, I did somewhat forcefully run through, like we need to get rid of all these homegrown subscriptions, like homegrown checkouts and homegrown like we had a surprisingly big percentage of our technology labor just bound to managing our ability to sell essentially a simple SaaS product to our customers. And at the same time, because what you've done on your own is usually probably the simplest possible way, we were completely handicapped in exploring pricing and packaging, exploring custom deals and all that stuff because none of our own stuff supported it. So we did eliminate all of that and move over to Chargebee. And that's just like one of the many examples of where it's still so common for me to see things like marketing site CMSs or like analytics tools, or, you know, even the whole data stack being things like it's just homegrown stuff. When there's an abundance of mature vendors out there who would be happy to, for like less than half of a single developer's annual salary, would be happy to like provide the infrastructure. Excellent. That's a really good example. Thank you for sharing that. So once you get through paring down some things, how long does that phase of the journey tend to last? Honestly, that's kind of a journey where that doesn't really ever end. It's more like the part of the journey that is like changing the mindset. Because again, the mindsets are usually more embedded into the culture than the actual tools. It's just 
teaching the org that you don't have to command and control everything. Like you don't have to own every piece of code. Not every one of the use cases you've invented for yourself that forced you to do a custom thing are valid and kind of teaching the company to yearn for that freedom that we're only investing our really expensive efforts into what's going to strategically differentiate us. Because it's usually like once you build everything yourself, you kind of infatuate yourself with like your homegrown things. And there's like, like a little bit of a Stockholm syndrome there. So it takes time to unwind all the stuff that a company builds in their early stage. But the mindset shift has to happen where like the company starts hating superfluous resource drains. You know what I mean? And that's the thing that needs to happen pretty fast is you just have to be able to get that point across is that if you extrapolate this to like even bigger scale, it's going to be an even bigger burden and an even, even more expensive burden. Absolutely. So tell me more about some of the other elements of being a product leader at a scale up after changing. I mean, obviously changing mindsets so much, but what are some of the other key themes that you'd like to talk about? I mean, honestly, especially at my time at Insight, where I got this beautiful cross section of just, I mean, their portfolio is really impressive. And I got to work with some really cool companies and some really cool leaders. And I got a good cross section of like, you know, leaders that were struggling and leaders that were like, despite their excellence, were hitting brick walls and, and got to do a good diagnostic of like, what is the common elements? And I think one of the things our craft, our industry really needs to look in the mirror with is we're a little too eager to stay within our own bubble, within like the safe space of like the product world. We have all these brilliant thought leaders, you know, like the Melissa Perry's and the Marty Kagan's and the John Cutler's who I love and respect to no end. But we sometimes forget that it's almost like a reverse Superman thing where like, you know, when you leave Krypton, you're powerless. If you go waving a Marty Kagan book into the executive team, you're going to get slapped in the face and thrown right out. Because as brilliant as Marty is, a lot of the stuff that we hold as self-evident and as almost axiomatic is completely powerless when you're in front of a CFO or a CRO or even a CEO or founder. And I think what we really need to challenge ourselves, especially people hitting VP and CPO seats, I mean, definitely CPO, but even like VP seats, you got to start rewiring your brain to be business first, product second. Also, like what I mean by the whole like building a new generation of like product executives, I really think what I'm saying applies to all product leaders, not just product management leaders, but engineering leaders, design leaders, where our collective ability to number one, come together and understand that product is not product management, product is engineering design and product and everything that needs to come together to build the thing the company makes money out of. And number two, we need to learn how to think business, think shareholder value, think fundraising, think PL, because all the things that we instinctively talk about when somebody asks us to like, hey, can you do five minutes at the board meeting or can you present to the executives? All the things that we instinctively talk about is noise to them. And the unfortunate thing, as much as we want it, want it to be like, we meet you halfway, you come halfway as well. They're not gonna, we got to go all the way. We need to talk in their language. We need to understand the problems and the opportunities that they are thinking of and how they want to communicate. Even if we do that without compromising at all on the things that we hold important to our craft. So how do we do that without compromising on those things? We learn. It's basically like you're dropped into a foreign country without knowledge of the language. You got to learn the language. You got to put the time in. I mean, I'm not telling anybody to like get an MBA. That's overkill, but learn the language of business. There is a very clear glass ceiling in your career as a product leader, as a product executive. 
like basically you need to be able to credibly be a CEO is the level you need to aspire for. Like you should be able to start your own company. You should be able to run a company to really be an effective CPO. Yeah. So some of the things that you need to learn to speak their language is a lot about speaking about the finance and the dollars. Yep. Yep. I mean, especially in growth stage companies and especially in like venture capital backed growth stage companies, if you don't understand how valuations come about, like what is important, what is not important for, you know, revenue multiples and all that good stuff. And also like how venture capital works, how venture capital deals work, what the logic is, what's investable, what's not investable, you know, what's the difference between like seed rounds, A rounds, B rounds, whatever. You have to be fluent in those. You have to be fluent in understanding how the game works, what people care about. Also, you need to be able to talk in terms of like a CFO. Like you got to be able to take a PNL and just like read every line item and understand what goes into them, what doesn't, what's COGS, what's OPEX, what's CAPEX, what's the difference? All those kinds of things. Talk about things like CAC and LTV and be fluent and credible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Did that come as a surprise to you? I'm, I, I don't know, I'm a pretty candid person and I'm, I admit my flaws, but it took me pretty much 15 years to get to that realization, both in terms of like, number one, it's critical because I had risen through the ranks of product development. So I thought it's all about the scrums and the sprints and the experiments and the, you know, empathy maps. I thought that's it. If you get those right, you're good. And it took me a lot of doors getting slammed in my face to realize like maybe there's something wrong with my approach or the language I use or, or whatever. Yeah, it definitely surprised me that that was, yeah. that was the case. And then like the other shocker was that it was surprisingly easy to learn. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> this, this stuff, it's the language of finance. There's this intentional obfuscation that makes it scarier. Like mm -hmm. it takes you a couple of years to even freaking remember what order the letters in EBITDA are, let alone what they stand for. And if you remember the words, what do those words actually mean? But it's a pretty simple concept. And so there's like this weird layer of obfuscation to like incredibly simple concepts. And the same thing with like PNLs, they're incredibly threatening because they're kind of complex. But once you start kind of digging in through the layers and you read a couple of really good S1s, so like public filing documents that are well-crafted. And honestly, it's super simple at the end of the day. It's just, I don't know if it's meant to keep laymen out of their world, but I think product people should be bolder about just like, you know, jumping into that seat and learning. Yeah, I think that's really valuable, especially when you're in venture funded startups, understanding that whole world, not just of how finance works, but how the financing works. That's really valuable. I know for myself, it's been a thing where it can be really frustrating at the beginning of the time when you start speaking to funders and you realize that they want to talk a different language from product people and you're like, but don't you care about all of these things about who our user is and how much they love our product? And they're like, well, show me the numbers. Yeah. And the funny thing is like, of course they should care. What we do, like product centric companies are the future of the world. And like some of the biggest companies out there justifiably are very product centric, very product minded. It's just acknowledging the unfortunate fact that most businesses are still run and operated by people who got their training in a, you know, late industrial stage era where most of it was just like managing complex networks of highly predictable atoms, essentially. Something like building a product, which is this glorious mess of a puzzle building versus like setting up a new lipstick line, for example, which is like, okay, we need this many more trucks, this many more factories, or this many more production lines. And here's the distribution. You know, every single little thing that goes into it, it's just really complex. But most companies are still run by people with a very deterministic view into business. And that's, you can either think of that as some sort of like inherently 
bad thing in the world, or you can think of it as just like a reality that you need to navigate. And I've at least found myself much happier when I got from the everybody's wrong, I'm right <laughs> mindset to like, let's see how I can make this work. Let's see how I can like get good outcomes from like a suboptimal starting point. So what are some of the other principles or lessons you've learned along the way? I mean, I think product people are usually pretty curious by nature. I mean, that's why we kind of get into product is that we've tried every freaking thing before and no hat seemed to fit. And then like we get into this like hodgepodge career, which is like a refuge of the indecisive. But I think continuing to leverage that curiosity is something that I need to remind myself at all times, because especially once you get to like executive roles where like it's more about like horizontal excellence, like how well can you understand sales and operations and marketing rather than like how good are you at your own domain, your own function. I think we should be increasingly curious about immersing ourselves with other functions, other departments, other domains. Even though I want every product person to keep listening to Holly's podcast, I think you should also listen to like marketing podcasts or like, I don't know if operations podcasts exist, but you know, I'm sure books do. But immersing yourself into like, what are the other ultra critical aspects of running a successful business? Because just having a good product, as much as we want to think that get the product right, everything else falls into place. It's not true. And as product people, we really deeply need to understand the other layers of the onion, like what it means to operate a product, what it means to sell it, what it means to market it. All this stuff is so critical and it can be overwhelming because it feels like we need to become these like weird Renaissance people that just know everything about everything. But you need to have a fairly strong cursory understanding of how like a really good modern marketing org works, how a really good sales ops pipeline works. Because at the end of the day, especially in like a software product company, we are the hub of the wheel and that's a servant position. Everybody else is relying on you to get the hub right, but you can't if you don't understand all the spokes that connect to it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I'm thinking about from what you said is I spoke to somebody once that told me that once he got into an executive position, he actually started trading places with someone else in the executive organization once a month every year. And it really hit home on this message that once you're an executive, you're an executive first and the discipline comes in later. I'm curious if you can elaborate on, does that sound like a good idea to you, trading places? What do you think? It sounds scary as heck, but I mean, it sounds like a brilliant, I mean, it's a very bold move. And uh, I can think of a million reasons why it would be a horrible idea, but it sounds, in principle, it sounds amazing. Because yeah, that's exactly the level of empathy and trust. Because like, basically, it's a huge leap of faith to let somebody else do your job <laughs> and vice versa. But like, to me, that's a really strong indicator of like an executive team that is really a team. Because like, mm -hmm. I have a fairly strongly held hypothesis that meaningful percent of dysfunction that we see is either like bad strategy or a badly functioning executive team, which I mean, obviously that can be a contributor to the first one, but like executive teams that don't know how to function as a team and especially as a first team. So again, like being an executive first and functional leader second, it just permeates the ranks. It cascades through. I mean, one of my favorite books of all time, at least in the business side, is Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And I think that that fable just captures that landslide moment when like a non-functional executive team learns to be each other's first team really beautifully because so many companies, especially growth stage companies, because they usually can't afford to hire like seasoned executives. So usually 
growth stage companies hire people who are like product executive is basically just like a functional leader. The engineering executives is just a functional leader. Same thing with like the salesperson, the marketing person, the finance person. It's like they are people who identify with their craft first and foremost. And the executive team job is just like a quote unquote seat around the table because it takes a couple of rounds around the block to understand that executive jobs are different than functional leadership jobs. But when your entire executive team is basically just like functional leaders, it turns into almost like the UN where like people just come in, spend the hour a week talking in a cross-functional setting only to go back to their functional silos after it and spend the other hours of the week in their functional bubbles. And so I think there's some critical things I now look for nowadays in functional companies. And one of them is the ability to keep the executive team small. I mean, I like magic numbers. I prefer executive teams of at most five people because it's such a leading indicator to can the company strategize and execute cross-functionally and not just like product, but like the whole company strategy. Can it be cohesive and uniform? It's incredibly driven by can the executive team, just those few individuals truly come together without functional bias, without infighting, like, oh, sales, this marketing, that product, whatever. And really like the focus and emphasis on that before it's like, how can we get the best possible product or the best possible marketing org? Those are important, but if the, the executive team doesn't work well, none of it will be of any benefit and it'll just lead to a lot of infighting and friction. So how can a, like a mid-career product person thinking about, you know, either their own company or joining a new company, how can they sort of tell from the outside if there's a well-functioning executive team at the company? Pretty, pretty hard, but in, an, in the interview process, you're, I mean, you're almost always going to talk to either somebody from your function that's in or near the executive team. You have to start learning to ask somewhat poignant questions. Like nobody's going to tell you like, oh yeah, our executive team hates each other and like they can't agree on anything and whatever. But you can always start asking things like what's driving the company's success. And if you get like super myopic answers, like if the product leader is just answering kind of like, oh, product innovation, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, it's not. There's no company ever where like it's that simple where just like product innovation is like paving the way there's always marketing excellence or sales excellence and like a well-running operations machine and if you're high enough like director level or kind of like one level removed from the executive team you might be able to meet executives of other functions like trying to ask questions that'll showcase the trust between functions or departments and the trust between executives will tell you a whole lot and it's easy to mask or fake trust in like explicit questions like what do you think about the other execs? Everybody's going to say, oh, they're wonderful professionals, super great. I love working with them. But when you start asking a little bit about like indirect questions about department to department relationships, you're going to start seeing the cracks if they exist. Yeah, that makes sense. I love the idea that, you know, you have to be sort of interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you when you're looking at a new job. And I think the higher up you go, the more true that is. Absolutely. And, and especially like, I mean, a lot of people say like, oh, you should be doing your due diligence like an investor. I think you should be doing your due diligence 10x more than an investor, because if you are an investor, you can write as many checks as you've got liquidity. When you're an executive, you've got one check to write, unless you you happen to be, uh, you know, Jack and you're co-CEOing Twitter and Square, you don't have time for multiple companies. So you got to do your due diligence to a much more rigorous level than an investor would. The problem is most companies still weirdly enough run their hiring processes as if they have all the power. You know what I mean? It's so weird. Like we are going through an unprecedented era of us as employees having all the power. 
like every product manager listening to this, I don't, I'm not telling you to quit your jobs or get a new job, but like there's 20 different companies that would hire you by the end of the week and would throw crazy money at you. We have all the power right now. And I'm going to regret saying this once I'm on the hiring end again, by the way, but <laughs> we have all the power, but all the companies are still running recruitment processes as if they're interviewing somebody in a one directional way when like they should understand that if it's ever been a two-way street right now, it is. Yeah. So what advice would you give to the aspiring product leader who's trying to find the right next step for their career? Well, who knows how long this current environment of opportunity lasts. So if you've got a good thing going, keep writing it. But if you've ever thought of changing jobs, like this is a really good time to do so. But beyond that, from just skills wise, as early as you can branch out from just immersing yourself in like kind of the product management lore, like you know, read the Kagans, read the Perrys, like read everything Cutler puts out there, listen to every podcast Holly puts out there. But as early as you can start dialing out from just the product bubble, read the S1s, do a little bit of investing on your own. Nothing teaches you better than having some skin in the game, just to start getting interested in how the money around the products that we build work, because that's going to be the superpower that will propel you to the next stage. Because you get to like VP level just by the razzle dazzle of like impressing other product people, but you will never retain an executive job without being able to razzle dazzle a CEO. And I can guarantee you quoting stuff from this interview or like a product thought leader, it won't get you there. Mm -hmm. That's good advice. So if people want to follow you, where should they go? I'm pretty active on all the socials, except I guess I'm not young enough for TikTok. Maybe I'll start my product TikTok channel very soon. But anyway, Twitter at Forsto, F-O-R-S-S-T-O is a good place. My website, Forsto, F-O-R-S-S-T-O.com has a pretty good list of things where I'm active. I'm horribly inactive with my newsletter and my blog, but you know, every now and then there's a burst of creativity and I start putting stuff out. So I'm the worst creator out there. Like I do everything that people tell you not to do, which is I have these short bursts of massive output followed by long periods of total inactivity. I've made my peace with it. I have no intention of being thought leader. So I'll just like share when I feel like sharing. So um, if you're ready for horribly unthrottled output, follow me on all the socials. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tommy. It's been a pleasure catching up. It's been wonderful. Let's do this again in three to four years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you like the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. 